Hi there, this is Dan Delta Collins. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and also youtube.com slash wanderingdms. We hope you enjoy the show. everyone welcome to wandering dms i'm paul and i'm dan and on today's episode of wandering dms we're gonna be talking about adventures for original dungeons and dragons in the 1970s some of our favorite modules ever and why the very idea of adventures being published was controversial at the time and we'll also take a look back at the legacy of one of our favorite designers janelle jacques all that and more today on wandering dms before we get into it, I'll remind everyone, as always, that at the end of the show, we'll be hosting our after-party chat. That is a live video chat with Dan and I and all of our patrons. So if you want to join in, you can just become a patron by visiting us at patreon.com slash wanderingdms. Join at any tier. You'll get an invite to our private Discord server. Get that set up through the course of the show. And at 2 o'clock Eastern, we'll be on there live with all our patrons for after-show after chat. Yeah, and we want to hear about what your uh, your favorite early adventures were at the time too. So um, I'm really glad we uh, this is our second episode of season six here, looking back again at our uh, the 50th anniversary of original D and D being published uh, in this month in '94, as far as we could tell. <laughs> um, and uh, so we we thought uh, the opportunity to talk about uh, pre-published adventures uh, in the '70s, and you know there aren't that many. You can compose a list of all the uh, pre-published adventures for Dungeons and Dragons in the in the decade of the '70s, and it's maybe about twenty, maybe you know it's on the order of a dozen to twenty. It was it wasn't that many, uh, and the very idea of uh, writing an adventure and publishing it for DMs at the time was was at one point unthinkable, and then kind of controversial. And actually, you can point to some circles today that people that were, were on the ground floor that think that pre-published adventures are a bad thing for D&D. Um, and of course, uh, the other thing that's on our mind this week is that one of our favorite designers of all time, Janelle Jaquais, did pass away a couple days ago this week. Um, and that we feel it's a huge loss. Um, she wrote some of, some of my favorite adventures of all time and was one of the earliest pioneers in doing that. So uh, we thought we'd take a look back and her, look at her legacy and how much Janelle's work really influenced later adventures and things like that. Uh, and I'll even say this, Paul, I think you might remember you, you were talking about our uh, after party chat that we have every week. Coincidentally, I was just quoting Janelle last week in our after party mm. chat. I was digging up my copy of Caverns of Thracy in order to uh, remind myself and, and read off one of my favorite little pieces of business there. Uh, so it, to, at least to me, um, incredibly essential, incredibly essential, incredibly informative work uh, by Janelle Jaquais. And it was on my mind even a couple days. So uh, kind of kind of a big loss in every everyone in, in life we uh, send our sympathies. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I was just noticing her, of course, in our uh, intro uh, reel there that you can see at the very beginning of the show. You see Janelle, right. so. Uh, yeah, our our hearts go out to her uh, family and, and and loved ones. Um, yeah, so it's it's rough. 
Um, Dan, I wanted I wanted to dig a little into this the that that tale. I've certainly heard this, I'm sure, secondhand, plenty of ways, and I I don't know what the actual source of this story is, but the idea that when Dungeons and Dragons was printed, the idea of pre-made adventures was simply not on their radar at all. And and I, from what I know, you know that gap was ultimately or initially filled by a company, uh, a third-party company called the We Warriors, who were the first to put out like the first two published modules. And it wasn't until those like showed some success that TSR kind of woke up and said, "Oh, geez, we need to make these ourselves." Is that, is that the story you've heard as well? well I, I don't know where I picked that up from. It is. It is. Yeah. Well, the so you know, if I pull up my copy of original D and D published fifty years ago this month. Um, you know, it has three little books like we were talking about last week. And then the very last page, there's an afterword by Gary Gygax. And he's saying, well, here's the rules. And um, you should really, you know, for expansions, you should just do it yourself. You should, you, should, you, know, you should come up with your own interpretations. We're not encouraging anybody to write in to us with questions and answers at this time. It says, uh, we're not loath to answer your questions. But why have us do any more of your imagining for you? So at least at that at that particular moment, um, the theory was th this is as much a, you know of the work as we should do for you. The rest should be yours. Um, and I think uh, you know thinking back to the the We Warriors publications, the very first one, and you've actually looked at this closer than I have, was Palace of the Vampire Queen. Am I right about that? Yeah. Now this, I mean, there's, there's a, you know, the, the idea that, um, that the designers may be intruding on the space of their uh, clients or their consumers is, is right yeah. here in, yeah. in these publications as well. So I have my copy here of uh, Palace of the Vampire Queen. This is a, a later printing. I can't remember what edition this is, but this is actually, you know, it says on it, a, a Wii Warriors game, pre-factored adventure for use in role-playing games. No mention of Dungeons and Dragons. Um, mm -hmm. And the interesting thing is, it actually, uh, on, right on the front page, I was looking to see if they said anything about, you know, how much they do or don't expect you to do. And it, it, it promotes itself as Dungeon Master Kit number one. And it tells mm -hmm. me, this kit represents a ready-to-use adventure for those strong of heart and steel strength. Possession of a wooden cross couldn't hurt either. The Dungeon Master may give or sell the player maps. The players, well, uh, it says... Feel to the address to the dungeon master here now. Dungeon master, feel free to use your imagination for dialogue or any extra details you feel would add to more exciting play. The kit itself is only a basic outline. You can make it a dramatic adventure. So clearly, this is like a kit for making an adventure. It's not really prevent presenting itself as like <laughs> a whole adventure for you ready to go. Right? It's like a, here's a starting point. Good luck. And and that holds I up. I think frankly, that because. When you dig into it, there's not a yeah. lot here. There's not a lot in this thing. Right. Right. Is it still in the design phase where you've kept like one line per area? It's just like monster treasure at the end. Is that is that basically what the yeah. design yeah. is most of the time? Yeah, basically you, you get you get a chart that looks like this, right? This is the most of the content looks just like this. And um, right. And you know, so each and and then I would say the majority of the pages here are actually the maps. Which are printed, yeah, okay. interestingly, you know, full page, right? Every map is full page like this. So clearly, you're intended to like get the staples out and pull these maps out because they're they're also not they're not there's nothing on the backs, right? These are just folded in. So you're clearly intended to get the 
get the maps out. And then it even says, you know, I think um, there's both a player and a GM version of each map, I want to say. Um, yeah. Um, because it, because it, there's that section I said, I, I was mentioning in the very beginning that says the dungeon master may give or sell the player maps to the players to speed gameplay. Maybe you want to give these maps directly to your players. Interesting. As, as like a handout. Right? And I'm pretty so sure. So the interesting thing, I'm so. kind of paging through quickly here, but this, yeah. So there's a keyed version and an unkeyed version. And the unkeyed version is okay. missing some stuff. It's definitely, the unkeyed one oh. is not a complete map. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. You know, I picked up my um, my copy of John Peterson's Playing at the World, the, his John Peterson's huge tome of the, the start of the role playing industry. And um, uh, I see it at the he's talking about that product that you're holding right there, Palace <laughs> of Vampire Queen. And so he's mm -hmm. saying that and, and that came out in June of 1976. So that was two years. It was two and a half years. Uh, after the publication of D&D, &D, before someone published an adventure to that level. And at least here, uh, Peterson's saying that the, um, the writers of that product, Pete and Judy Carriston, had previously developed a character archaic, which was just blank maps. It was just blank maps. Right. So well, he's pointing to Palace of the Vampire Queen as um, an extraordinary evolution. Oh, they're, they're, they're doing so much more for you. They're actually giving you some kind of content in the rooms. And now is a forward. Um, yeah. So even that really minimalist um, publication uh, counted as a, uh, a real breakthrough. <laughs> yeah. so there's, there's, a, there's a page in the beginning of about four paragraphs of text that is the background, right? So it gives you sort of, a, you know, here's the context of the adventure um you know who the vampire queen is and you know why it matters it's 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 you know pure fluff as we would consider it in in modern like it doesn't really matter towards the yeah yeah output of the adventure um definitely the maps are the are the are the big um are the big uh you know value add here i'll, I'll show you an example here so here's level here's level 5 which is right in the center and this is the player version of the map and as you can see Right, you got doors and rooms outlined, and then real quick, here's the DM version where we have numbers, and you can see there's a whole hallway there on the very north side that is connected, oh, I think, through yeah. secret doors. So that's missing in the player version. Okay. Oh, right. So there's nice. secrets missing from the from the, which I think is always a clever conceit, and I'm surprised more adventures didn't do this of like having player version and DM version of maps. But then the then the rest of the text really is just this, where you have whole lots of lines that just say. No encounters empty. Nine orcs with all of their hit points. I've got all their hit points in parentheses. Empty. Yeah. Um, let, me, let me read one of the longest ones here. No encounters. Laboratory. Counters and cupboard. Large table in center of room. Empty except for 24 flasks scattered on table. 20 empty. One poison. Two undead control. That's, that's the entirety yeah. of the entry. Yeah. Um, Interesting. Yeah, it's in so, the same the ballpark. Sorry, when we when we when we see over the shoulder of you know Gary uh, Gygax running uh, Greyhawk Adventures at a convention, it's the same basic extent. It's like one line per room, and it's monster treasure most of the time. That's it. Um, and at least in Gary's uh, earliest adventures, like Greyhawk or Expedition of the Barrier Peaks or something like that, 
most of the rooms on the map aren't even keyed. I guess I've said that a number of times at this point. So uh, le legitimately actually really empty to the point where there's no actually key there. So that seems to be the style. That was the, that was the earliest style and you know, that'll get you started. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating historic thing. Now I, I became aware of this adventure because I went to Total Con in, I would say the mid aughts. Uh, I, I've been going to TotalCon for forever, but around the mid-aughts, um, Frank Menser and Tim Kask were there often, and Frank actually ran this, and that was and any and it was it was a fun little thing, right? It was kind of in the in the time period when the OSR was kind of burgeoning, right? And there was a lot of interest in it, and so it was very much built as like, hey, you want to play the first adventure ever, right? <laughs> so with with Frank Menser at the helm, come play this. <laughs> uh, I think that's actually Great. coincidentally also um, where I met friends of the show, Ragnar. Uh, hi, Ragnar, if you're watching. Um, yep. So uh, uh, yeah, it was a good, uh, it's a good time, and and I and I enjoyed it. And it was frankly, it was my first exposure to this existing. And I went, I got to track this thing down, and um, you know, and had to like, I can't remember if I actually found the physical copy or the PDF first because it's actually fairly hard to find, frankly. There was a question, Dan, yeah. in our chat about like what happened to the We Warriors folks. Do you do you know any of the history there? Are they? Are they still I don't. Around? If someone could, if someone wanted to step in on that, I don't. Like, frankly, they completely predate my um, consciousness of D and D. Frankly, so only heard of them through historical sources. So I don't know. That's a great. That's a great question. And really quickly, I pulled up the Wikipedia article, and it tells me. In late 77, with the release of the new AD&D rules and rapidly expanding, TSR stopped distributing third-party materials. We Warriors tried right. diversifying, designing Star Trek board games, promoting new science fiction play-by-mail game, but the company was unable to regain traction in the marketplace and ceased publication in 78. So it basically sounds like TSR kind of was originally distributing for them and then like cut them off, yeah. started making their own content to replace what they were doing, and that's, so goes... So goes the, uh, the, the, I don't know. It, it feels like a commentary in general to me, like the fate of, of, uh, small third party, uh, companies getting, getting, uh, taken over by the, by the big fish. Yeah. And, uh, I see, uh, Dan Boggs in the chat here, big friend of the show. Uh, thanks for checking in here today, Dan, saying that TSR licensed them for a while. And I do think that's a commentary, particularly on, uh, being dependent on a license. You know, there's a there's a big risk reward there. I've worked at companies, you know, video game companies that had a great business going as long as they had a license. But that is a lifeline that when it gets cut off, um, it's really hard to uh, recover from, frankly. So I've I've been at places that went through the same thing, frankly. That, totally you know, that, that said, I mean, this is fascinating to me. Now, of course, I, this is an older printing. So I, I feel like I want to track down an earlier printing to see how it presented itself, because this one actually has a copyright of 77 in here. So this is clearly late, late era We Warriors, right? When they're maybe, you know, trying to hang on. And it, and it says, it calls itself a Dungeon Master kit. It definitely, the term Dungeon Master appears in here. I don't see Dungeons and Dragons at all. I don't see that, that terminology here whatsoever, right? And it says it's a pre-factored adventure for use in role-playing games of any kind, apparently. I, I, I think that that's the era where Tia Star started to become more conscious of uh, trademark uh, copyright issues. 
and probably started um, being a little bit more um, frowny faced about people using Dungeons and Dragons as a trademark. I, so it's it's interesting that they have DM in there and not D&D and try to be careful about that. That's an interesting yeah, catch. Yeah. That is, that is interesting. Little aside, let me just say to viewers, if you're seeing uh, my me glitching at the moment, I apologize for that. I will say that in an, in an attempt to to um, to satisfy you viewers, I actually laid down new networking cable in my apartment yesterday uh, in an attempt to make the uh, the stream better for you. Uh, at the moment here in New York, it actually has started storming, so I can just in the last couple minutes, it started snowing and blowing. Um, outside, so I don't know if that has something to do with it. So I apologize. We'll we'll get through today's as best we can. Yeah. The other thing I want to throw out because uh, uh, in the in the chat a couple minutes ago, Hobo Ogre asked the question: of What? Why in the world was the idea of adventures controversial? And uh, the other thing that I picked up this morning on that point is um, I, I have a copy of uh, Rob Kuntz's. Uh, book Dave Arneson's True Genius, which is a which is a, a, an interesting idiosyncratic book, I will say. Of course, Rob Kuntz was basically there at in the earliest era. He was a principal at TSR. He's worked very very closely with uh, Gary Gygax, um, and also knew Dave Arneson very well. And so, published this a couple of years ago. Rob is still furious. Rob is still furious about the um, business direction that D&D went in, particularly with published campaign settings and adventures. Um, and so I feel that, and, and more or less, this book is largely a screed about what a horrible um, sabotage that business transition was. And I'm just gonna read a little snippet of Rob's um, very intensely felt beliefs about this issue. Um, so he's writing here, um, with the change from game as creator to game as consumer, this investiture and creative transformation morphed into a slavish <laughs> adherence to industry. This was a complete reversal from self-determination in play and design, and also the abandonment of volition that was eagerly sacrificed at the altar of industry products and procedures. Current consumers in this industry come hobby are mostly appreciative of the idea that RPG products entertain them. Those of the foundational era in this hobby appreciated the license to create what matched their strengths and proclivities. Hmm. I mean, it's clearly a thing that they were that the, that was uh, struck that they were struggling with, frankly, right? And you see it a lot. I feel like in the editorial columns of Dragon Magazine of the period as well, where you see a lot of gnashing of teeth over. Over, I think I feel like the creators uh, uh, of Dungeons and Dragons, anyone involved in, in TSR in the early in that uh, early time in the kind of the late seventies, uh, were really just genuinely surprised, frankly, that they were getting as many requests as they were getting for content, for rulings, for for what they would see, I think, as hand holding. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yep. And I mean, so many, you know, so many industries and creative fields, you know, go in this direction. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I can I can feel that of the, you know, the the overall sensibilities at the at the outset being very, very different um, from, you know, when it became more popular. And it's 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 always a struggle when things evolve in that in that kind of direction. 
Let's talk about let's talk about another another adventure because um, we warriors came out with uh, Palace of the Vampire Queen in that uh, June 1976 date, but they they were tied. Another published adventure came out the same month, June 1976. So technically, um, the 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 non TSR people who published the first adventure technically tied. And the other thing that came out in that same month of uh, summer 1976 was a work by Janelle Jaquez. And at the time she had, uh, I think it's still in college, was publishing a fanzine called The Dungeoneer. And that month published uh, that The, the Dungeoneer had a pre-made adventure called, I'm not sure I'm going to say this right, F. Chelrak's Tomb. Uh, and again, very curt, I think maybe about uh, 12 encounter areas and maybe about four pages of text or something like that. Of course, Janelle was both a writer, a creative and an artist. So the map, the text, all this kind of stuff was all a one person job at the time. And I'll just, and I haven't run it. I have a copy, I managed to get a PDF copy. Um, but there's a really um, interesting review uh, on a blog named DM Dave a couple years ago. And DM Dave looked at, had a couple blog posts where they looked at the earliest adventures. And technically the very earliest, number one, would be the Temple of the Frog that Dave Arneson included in his Blackmore supplement for D&D in 1975. And then the next, the next two, you're gonna be talking about Palace of the Vampire Queen and if Chelrex Tomb by Janelle Jaquez uh, in 76. So here's what DM Dave said. He said he, he described Elf Chelrex Tomb as the earliest D&D adventure that remains playable, is what he said. He said, in earlier posts, I examined uh, two of the first three D&D adventures to reach print. There's Temple of the Frog and Pam Palace of the Vampire Queen. To explore D&D's origins, some modern players have tried playing those dungeons. My advice, don't. <laughs> don't just just don't do that <laughs> right <laughs> but but you can pick up f chelrex tomb and even in the context of maybe fifth edition D, &D a little a little bit of retuning a little bit of maybe monster swapping and he points to uh janelle jaquay's elf chelrex tomb is essentially the first D, &D adventure that um that is worthwhile a player nowadays picking up and actually running for players which i think is an interesting insight hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. Again, you know, kind of minimalist. Janelle, um, our friend Justin Alexander refers to um, what she did as jquaying the dungeon. Um, built it out a little bit more, gave a little bit more narrative, a lot more um, explicitly, uh, you know, tricks and traps and kind of puzzles and mysteries uh, came into play a little bit more explicitly. Um, so personally, uh, I think I'm going to try to run that myself uh, sometime in the future because it's, it's new to me, frankly. I haven't had an opportunity in the past, but now I'm kind of eager based on that to see how F, uh, F Chelrex Tomb runs. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. I, I just keep thinking about how uh, I was surprised here to see uh, Palace of the Vampire Queen calling itself a kit. And and I, I think it's, I feel like, I feel like you just see this constantly throughout the evolution of the game is this this struggle with how much how much hand holding or how much work do we do versus how much creativity do we man for the DM, right? It goes all the way into like the argument of, of for or against box text, right? Is that too a step too far? Should the DM be doing that 
work or should we be providing it for them? And I, you know, I, I land in this kind of fascinating headspace of like, it's almost like, it's almost like you have people at like a farmer's market shaking their fists at people who are doing like those, those uh, meal plan delivery services who in turn are shaking their fists at like frozen meals, right? Like, <laughs> which, which one's the right? They, uh, they all let you cook food. <laughs> who are right? shaking their fists at restaurants who are shaking their fists at food trucks on the street outside. Right, right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Fascinating. What is the right level? I don't know. Is is there a right level? Is there a correct answer to this question? I mean, maybe the answer is simply just that, yeah, we need a lot of different, well, you need a variety of products to serve a variety of customers. Maybe. You know, the other know. thing that, I, that comes to mind is in a field like this is the evolution of the um, specialization of work. Right. So mm -hmm. the role that classically we think of as the DM is uh, there's rules adjudication, there's creating a campaign world, there's individual adventures, um, uh, mapping, uh, setting down encounter areas, all that kind of stuff. And at a, at a hobbyist level, it makes sense for one person as an auteur to do all that kind of stuff. And you can point to the early video game industry being the same thing. For for the earliest consoles, uh, circa 1980, a single person would do everything on a particular game. And as it gets more elaborate and as the business gets more elaborate, you can see that individual parts of these things get shaped. Now you can have a separate mapper, you can have a separate graphic designer, you can have a separate encounter person, you can set up rules, person, you know, runs it, um, uh, and on and on like that. I, I know that when I was you know, in the, in the video game industry, circa 1990, and I came in and I'm like, I'm an engineer, but I also want to engage in game design. Uh, you know, one of my bosses, their mind was blown. Like, oh, oh, an engineer, game design? What a, what a fascinating novel concept, never considered that. And to me, maybe I guess being a little bit older, I was like, well, why on earth, why would I be in this industry if I wasn't doing that? Um, so those fields always kind of evolve in that, in that direction. I don't know if I would call it evolve though. Like, I feel like, I, th I feel like there's just, there's different personalities or different types of, of people who want to engage with a product or a thing or a game or whatever in different ways. Right. My, I was immediately drawn. I was just thinking about, uh, Magic the Gathering as, as some folks know, I've been tinkering with learning more about Magic the Gathering recently. And the, the notion came up that I was in a, discussing it with somebody. Um, and and I, I point out like, well, there's an aspect of the game where I'm sitting with my large collection of magic cards and I am deck building, right? Basically the idea of I'm, I'm leafing through my collection. I'm looking for cards that work interesting ways together and I'm creating a deck. Is that playing magic? Like some would argue, yes. That is clearly you're engaging with the game in a fun, creative way, and you're enjoying your time. And to pass time as a ledger, that is that is you are playing magic. And then there are others who are like absolutely not. And on the other hand, I know there are people who don't like that aspect of the game and who would rather go online and look up a known deck list of where somebody's just to transcribe. Here are all the cards I put in this deck. It does really well. And then they're going to go and obtain those cards and build that deck so that so that they can play the mm -hmm. game. Right? They just want to play the game. They don't want to be bothered with the whole deck building aspect and they just want a deck that is good. And then yeah. and then people like myself who might, I don't personally, okay. So my own tastes, I love deck building. I think that's one of the more enjoyable aspects of the game for me. Um, 
And so I look at people who are playing it that way and I'm like, oh, I don't know that I want to play with that person, right? Because they're engaging in the game in a totally different way, right? They're not, they're not engaging in a creative way of, of, of owning and, and using the deck as an expression of self or creativity or whatnot. They're just in, excited about the, the crunch and the mechanics and can I win? And personally, I don't give a damn if I win or not, frankly. I enjoy, did I make an interesting, fun deck? And did I, did I do something unusual and creative and exciting and whatnot? So anyway, uh, it's fascinating, I think. It's fascinating because um, I don't know. I don't know that I wonder how much in the Magic communities those two camps, and, and there are multiple different camps, there's a, and I hear there's all these interesting terms for, for player types and how people engage with the game. Um, but like, do they argue with each other whether or not they're quote unquote real magic players or they're playing it right? Or do they accept that, like, you know, different people just play the game differently? I can see both. I can totally see both sides. And to bring it back to um, to D and D uh, for a minute, um, you know, the, the sensibility I get from the earliest fanzines of the seventies is that the the overall consensus was that every DM would have their own what we'd call now mega dungeon is that every DM had a signature mega dungeon yep. that was theirs. Um, yep. uh, kind of like a, every chef had their own restaurant. Um, and so the expectation is you'd go in for a, for a custom, you know, surprise, mysterious experience. And with the evolution of packaged, published adventures, um, all of a sudden it became, you know, again, like a lot of, like a lot of media does, uh, became more mass produced. And mm. again, I found there's a really, and I and I I immediately believe this as I usually do uh, from the writing. So I found an quote uh, back in 2010. Our friend James Malajewski interviewed uh, uh, Janelle Jaquez uh, at his uh, you know website Grognardia, the adore to death, of course. And one of the things that Janelle said about um, her early fanzine, The Dungeoneer. And, you know, just last week, right, I was, you know, we were mentioning there's three books. And to my mind, there's three canonical areas that are ripe for expansion in D&D. And that's spells and it's monsters and it's magic items. So usually when you get supplemental, you know, works, you have a whole bunch of that when you're buying a new role-playing product. So Janelle's observation 2010 was, um, looking back at the, at the legacy, was it's the adventures that stand out. And, and she said, not simply because no one else was doing these mini adventures in 1976. She said, when I read comments about the magazine or talk to fans, no one talks about the monsters or the art or the magic items or the rules variants. Mm. They're always talking about the adventures. And I mm. feel that. I feel like if we're going to talk, if we're going to have a conversation about like old school gaming or experiences, frankly, the first thing that pops into my mind is something like Keep on the Borderlands. Or you know the against the giant series, like those are the actual experiences that we've had. You know the dramatic experience that we've had in play at the table. If you're playing in the era of you know pre-made adventures, and even if someone played with another DM or another location or another country, that's something that we can have a conversation about. About what did you do when the bugbears invited you in for dinner and keep of the borderlands, right? That's something that's going to be very right, memorable right. and very yeah. interesting. And it is, I think it's a, it's a good thing that we can share these experiences across, you know, 
mm. geographical locations and time um, that we remember these events. And it's not quite as it's not quite as enticing to have a conversation about like, what's your ruling on the charm person spell? Like that's 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 <laughs> less likely to have a really vibrant conversation. But you know what happened when you walked into the Hill Giant Chiefs, you know, banquet? That's that's something that immediately gets people excited. That's fascinating um, because I feel like these days, more often than not, when I bump into somebody randomly out there in the world, and it comes up, oh, you play D and I play D and D too. I love it. Like the first thing I start to hear about, especially if they're not a DM, especially if they're just a player. Sorry, just that's that's a bit judgy. Um, if they are if they're <laughs> specifically a player who does not DM, um, that that they'll they usually what they'll jump into, what they want to talk about is the character they made. Let me tell you about my character, right? Yeah. And 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 in later editions, in fifth edition, right, you you get a lot of like, oh well, I used you know this class or this race from this supplement, right? Because there's a ton of them, and you know I use this background and blah blah blah, right? And it's okay. So there's an interesting you know, creativity there, much like building my deck and magic, like I've taken the elements of the game and mixed and matched them together. But I feel like most of us, or a lot of people I know that I talk to about D&D with, especially on this channel and whatnot, will kind of like roll their eyes at that kind of encounter, right? Oh God, they want to tell me about their character. (laughs) 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 Oh boy, right? Well, on the other hand, if they want to tell me about, hey, oh, have you played you know, the G series, you know, what did you do in this situation? Like, yeah, now I'm engaged. Now I'm very excited right. to talk about it, which is right. fascinating. Right. Um, and it's maybe I, harder I, to I, do I, in this day and age because there's so much content. There's yeah, probably right. much less yes. likely to be overlap. Yes. Yeah. And the other, you know, and I will say, you know, as I was thinking about the early adventures, um, you know, there, there, was a, there was a smaller number we would, you know, if you if you started with Holmes Basic, you probably had Keep on the Borderlands, and everybody, you know, everybody of our generation knows Keep on the Borderlands, and it's a common thing you can co- converse about. Of course, the other thing, you know, you're, you Paul was talking about Palace of the Vampire Queen. You can see they're kind of re, they're they're discovering the terminology, right? So Palace of the Vampire Queen calls it an adventure kit, a, a DM's kit or something like that most of us from the first edition era call these things modules so if you're like a new player and you hear us say module that's an adventure module nowadays you're supposed to call it adventures and the other thing is the fact that all through the uh, the 70s 80s and 90s the stuff from tsr the makers of dnd were all you know had the had the letter the letter <laughs> numeric code so mm-hmm. Frequently, you'll hear us, you know, instead of saying keep on the borderlands, we'll say B2 because that was the code for B2. And it kind of had, you know, it kind of, I don't know how intentional it was, but it kind of um, encouraged a collector's attitude of like, oh, well, I have, you know, I have S1 and S2 and S4, but I don't have S3. My collection's incomplete. I got to fill in that gap because I I don't have, I don't have so I got to go out and find that one, even though I hadn't, maybe I don't even know what S3 is, but I just know there's a gap in my collection. Um, And uh, so that's, that's another, with the, with the larger amount of content nowadays, you don't nearly have that kind of, um, you know, I must, I must have a complete set of all the advanced D&D modules, which at one point was possible and now no longer is. 
Now, I, it's, it's so interesting. It's fascinating that you bring up the terminology because it's true. Like I will, and and I don't even pay attention to it, but I will mix and match those terms all the time. And I'll say module, and sometimes I'll say scenario, and sometimes I'll say adventure. And if it's a particularly big yeah. one, I might say campaign, <laughs> which to right. me actually right. is a there's a there's a there's a line somewhere in my head between what's an adventure and what's a campaign. But I it's a bit fuzzy. I probably have trouble like exactly pinpointing what the difference is. A bit. A bit like uh, what is the difference between a pond and a lake? Uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, for those, well, for those wondering, me, the answer is nothing. But cinnamon, cinnamon, cinnamons, synonyms. That's the word I'm trying to say. But yeah, anyway, go on. But let me help you, Paul, because I because I noticed this on the Wikipedia page for adventures in Dungeons and Dragons. There's a specific Wikipedia page just for D and D adventures. The idea of it, and so clearly this has been compiled over many years with many editors looking at it, and so they've looked at this very carefully. It says. Uh, let me see here. Says, the exact differences between the terms adventure, module, scenario, and accessory are hard to precisely define in Dungeons and Dragons terminology. <laughs> They've all been used in a bunch of different ways. Okay, well that. <laughs> so there, that's so you're that's in good delightful. company. That's <laughs> no one can answer that. <laughs> now that said. I do think there are some uh, outliers, modern day outliers, where people, where a, a specific book of content, shall we say, an adventure, I'm just going to use the word adventure, an adventure came out that got around enough that people latched onto it. And I do hear this conversation a lot in, in 5e circles. I will hear, we were playing Curse of Strahd. I don't know what it is about Curse of Strahd. I never played it. But like that adventure somehow... Um, was played enough, widely enough, that people will, you know, come together and be like, oh, you play Curse of Strahd, and then immediately have Curse of Strahd discussion, which I think is fascinating. Okay, great, great, good. So, so it does still we, exist. I, I, feel like I think it's just more, more rare. Yeah. yeah. I think the, uh, the, 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 the big, uh, you know, it comes out of Tumahar is basically the biggest Sararat campaign adventure, and I'm forgetting what it's called, like Apocalypse Wheel or something, something, I don't know. Um, seems to get quite a bit of conversation in the circles that I see too. I totally mangled that, and I apologize if I if that's a completely nonsensical reference. I apologize about that. Um, you know, and William right now is asking. You know, maybe it's because maybe your observation, Paul, is because Curse of Strahd is descended from a really good adventure, and the one that I came up with also is descended from a really important adventure too, right? Mm, so that's possibly a good observation. I I regardless of why Curse of Strahd caught on, I think the more interesting thing for me is the fact that it did catch on. That enough 5e players bought yeah. it, enjoyed it, and played it, that now I will see people getting together who are, you know, who are meeting up who have not, you know, don't play together regularly. Let's just put it that way. People who don't play together regularly will will talk about it and say, oh, did you play Curse of Strahd? Yes, I did. Oh, and then they'll have a whole conversation about having played Curse of Strahd. So I think the, the interesting thing to me is that it was widely distributed enough that enough players have played it that it isn't become a touch point for 5e players, I believe. Cool. Good. Good. That's, that's, but, a, yeah. that's a plus for, for 5th edition yeah. D&D. I, I, I think so. I think so. But again, it's, I think it's rare, right? And it's harder because there's just so much content, right? Probably ever since... I don't know. When did, when did this start? Is this, three, is this 3e? Is this the, the D20 glut? Problem is that, that yeah that, right and and one of our one of our great uh, patrons 
was talking about that last week to us actually is that they they're somewhat incensed by the the the, the third edition era that caused that big that big um, tidal wave of third party content. I thought it was very exciting at the time. I can see why it's hard for you know anyone to get traction with a really canonical adventure in the same way nowadays. Um, now, obviously, Curse of Strahd is a publication by Wizards of the Coast, and they are the 800-pound gorilla, so they're going to get way more eyeballs than anything else. Um, and I, I can see, I can see both ways. I can see both ways. It's, you know, it's, and I can also see why there was so much excitement being able to, you know, publish Adventures of the Time because, you know, up until that point, the relatively small number of adventures were all really canonical. Were really um, you know, very much in our minds a lot as players. Um, and you can kind of see why that all happened. Um, okay. And yeah, it's really I wanna, hard to cut through this shape. Yeah. We, we've been talking a lot here about sort of like the reception of adventures and why people liked them and, and like, or, or how they were received, right? How, how, what people liked or didn't like about them and how well, how vastly distributed they are or whatnot. But like, I'd love to touch a little bit more on the actual raw content, right? Because we were we were looking at Vampire Queen earlier and kind of kind of laughing a little at how sparse the content is. That clearly changed. Like when when did that change? Do you know? Like at what point? How quickly did they jump from this to say I don't know B two, which clearly has a lot more text in it? Is this is this Gygax's fault? Is it just that Gygax does not know how to write a small amount of text? Well. <laughs> Well, I mean, he did for himself, right? He did for himself, certainly. <laughs> right. So, and I'll, and I'll remind right. folks, right? I'll remind folks the same month, right? The same month as Palace of the Vampire Queen, Janelle Jaquais came out with um, F. Chelrek's tomb, and it has approximately paragraph length encounter areas already, right? So, there's sort of a competition within the month over the direction that those things were going to say. And I gotta, I hope, I hope people are okay with this. Um, I'm gonna read, you know, the room five. Okay, room five of Elf Chalric's tomb. I can't, I can't read all of it because it goes over a page <laughs> in length, right? One single encounter room, and it has. And I'll just, I'll just read the first paragraph. Room five. This room is lined with eleven draped objects, each approximately six feet tall and indistinguishable from the other. They are draped with dusty sheets. Sheets have a 20% chance of disintegrating when touched. If left, if left discarded on the floor, they will attack and try to smother and constrict anyone. And then you go on and there are a bunch of separate statues, right? Which is why this goes a whole page. Um, and each of the separate statues is individually described with their own paragraph. A little bit like Mike Carr's In Search of the Unknown with the, with the famous pool room. So, so this is very different sensibility. There's a very different right. sensibility with a lot more detail and again, a lot more puzzles and a lot more tricky kind of things. And I would, I would say that Janelle set the tone. Ultimately, that was successful as a product. Her recollection is that the fans of the Dungeoneers were excited and this is the thing that stuck in their mind. So arguably, right, arguably, um, kind of to borrow the phrase from DM Dave, if one of these first three adventures is still playable, it's Janelle's, and because she gave that level of detail to it. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting. I, I, I feel like we need... Yeah, yeah. okay. I, I, I buy it. I buy it. Wait, what year is that? When is that coming out? June 1976, same month as Palace of the Vampire Queen. Okay. 
Okay. The, the other the other example I would start to look at, although this is probably later, right, is is the stuff coming out of Judges Guild, right? When you look at something like Tegel Manor, which is coming out, but that's not until seventy seven. Yeah. That's uh, I believe that's also right, like a lot more dense text than you're going to find in, in in this thing. Correct. Correct. Maybe less so than uh, F. Chelrex Tomb, actually. Um, mm -hmm. Tegel Manor is still pretty minimalist, but more, you know, there's more, there's more meat there than uh, Palace of the Vampire Queen. But you're right. And of course, you know, again, you know, Janelle's work was largely published by Judges Guild. So, uh, you know, enormously famous with uh, Dark Tower and Caverns of Thracia that I think were published in 1979. Uh, you know, Dark Tower was picked as one of the top 30 best adventures of all time a number of years ago. Um, uh, so yeah, they were, you're right. The Judges Guild was definitely at the forefront of you know interesting, memorable adventures. You know what's you know what's interesting too. I this is my minor side point, but like I often have trouble tracking down all the Judges Guild stuff and like wrapping my head around what came out when and and how much of it even exists. And I think it's because they didn't adopt TSR's methodology of giving letter and number codes. I wish Judges right? Guild had given the codes. It would be so much easier right? as a right? collector to then track what exists and doesn't. That's very right. Fun. Thank you. Thank you. It's so <laughs> I, I really. It's so funny that I was. You know, I've been having to to you know get away from the habit of referring to adventures just by the code. Where it was just so simple. Well, there's B two and there's G one and there's S one. Da da da. da. Um, and you know, and that that having been, and I have to I have to forget. I, God, are we thirty years away from that at this point? Um, <laughs> embarrassingly, that I have to use, I have to use names instead of numbers. It's yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> <That's hilarious. laughs> let me so as we get into the last couple minutes, is there was like, what are your favorite? Like, are there are there are there adventures from the seventies that you that we haven't mentioned, Paul? That are like your favorites of the you uh, know. I, I don't think so, frankly. When I get into like my favorite early modules, most of them tend end up being slightly older than I realize, right? Like, like when we talk about Judges Guild, as much as everyone loves Tegel Manor, I always jumped to House on Hangman's Hill, and frankly, that I think isn't coming out until eighty one. Um, you know, I, I think I think a lot of the stuff that that I really enjoy is probably coming from either very late seventies or early eighties, and and I have I'm less, I just have less background, I think, in the in the super early early stuff, they, with the one outlier being Palace of the Vampire Queen, which I bought, I think, just because of it's fascinating as being the first. I think that I hear that. Um, I think that. It bears keeping in mind that a lot of our very memorable um, adventures that were, you know, mass published, uh, 1980, 1981, 1982, something like something like that, had you know had an interesting playtest tradition that they were actually first written and played years before that. So sure. I think that if you pick if you pick an adventure like that in let's say 1981, it's quite likely that that adventure was, and even if it's branded maybe you know first edition, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. It was probably first written in the 70s for original D&D &D and then later rebranded. And there's a bunch of stuff like that. But if you look at technically the first publication, you know, like there's Lost Caverns of Sajkans, which I think when it came out from TSR, I think that's module S3, I think, if I'm correct. Um, and 
um, I think it has it's a publication date of 1983, but it was first actually run at WinterCon in 1976. The same you know time frame as Palace of the Vampire Queen and stuff like that. So at the time, AD and D didn't exist. Technically, Sajkant is an original D and D adventure because that's what it was written for initially in '76. Mm -hmm. And there's a there's a you know Temple of uh, Elemental Evil and Village of Hamlet and all those kinds of things. Um, the the you know frankly, I'm an enormous fan of the the Giant series, the Giants and Drow series by Gary Gygax, and of course. Um, you know, that came out um, in 1978, I believe, first run at the Origins Game Convention that year and then published later that year. But a lot of even, you know, keep on the Borderlands, right? Keep on the Borderlands. 1980, I think, technically, 1979, I guess, is when it was published. But on my blog in the past, I've done a statistical analysis of all the hit points in the adventure. And it sure as heck looks like the hit points were generated based on D6s, not on D8s from the system mm -hmm. as it existed 1975 later. So even, even if you do a numerical analysis, there's a lot of evidence that those early adventures by Gygax really come out of his original D&D play. And we're just slightly mm -hmm. rebranded with the advanced or basic you know, branding on it. So I think that you you could very easily point to those kinds of things you're you're thinking about, Paul. And I would say I bet they were original D and D from the seventies, technically. Yeah, very likely, very likely. Yeah, I mean, you know, also of course it doesn't help that uh, I don't know about you, but for me personally, I'm coming to all of these things much later. I didn't read any of these things. Certainly didn't read them in the seventies. Let me tell you, couldn't read in the seventies. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. No, never mind. Uh, yeah. Great. So, uh, <laughs> um, you know, I really only became aware of this stuff much later in life, and so I just stumbled onto things as I stumbled onto them. And, uh, and of course, I avoided the G series for a very long time simply because you were running them, you were digging into them, and you were running them. And I thought, yeah, well, then right. great, yeah. I want to experience them. I don't want to. I don't want. I no spoilers, right? Get them away from me. Great, great. See, you're a good player. See, you're this is, and this is why I enjoy playing with you, Paul, because you're fundamentally a good player. Because I've had players that were, didn't have that mindset uh, in the past, so it was a, com a complete joy for that. I will say that you know, again, you know, Steading of the Hill Giant Chief, right? Module G one. That's the first thing published by TSR mm -hmm. for an adventure. And yes, I I have a copy of the monocolor. G1 module that I did pick up out of the store when it was first on sale. Um, so I remember being really excited about that. Um, you know, same for the rest of the G series. I've said it in the past that you could almost, you could justify the advanced D&D game by just being the operating system that lets you run the GDQ series, frankly. I think that's it's that <laughs> good. And I, I enjoy if I if I could run it over and over again for people that never experienced it, I would love it. And let me say let me say this. I think, and I've said this before too. There's, I think there's a reason why it's so strong is that it's about something else. And in particular, um, you know, the 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 giant series is very much a replication of De Camp's first Howard Shea story called The Roaring Trumpet where he absolutely goes through one, two separate locations of giant headquarters, um, you know, try, trying to recover Thor's hammer, if I recall correctly. 
Um, and that that kind of you know using outside inspiration and, and anybody anyone that is going to run the Gygax's Giant series, I would highly recommend that you've you've got to read that Roaring Trumpet story to see all the the nuanced texture where it's coming from. Um, and yeah, when a when a when a media starts to become totally a, a roborost and just about itself, I think that that's becoming smaller instead of larger. And I like my role playing to be touching on other elements in the culture outside it. And I think that's one of the reasons why that first TSR series, the GDQ series is so really, really super strong. And I, I really am glad that that's, that that's in the world. Great. Then we are pretty much out of time here. Do you have uh, any final thoughts on uh, the original modules? I think it's really telling our mutual observations that a lot of the stuff that still comes out of Wizards of the Coast for D&D nowadays is touching upon these earliest adventures. So the fact that Wizards of the Coast can make these mega campaigns that are fundamentally rooted in Tomb of Horrors by Gary Gygax, or mm. can make uh, the, the Curse of Strahd that ties back, maybe not in the 70s, I don't know when it, that was, when the, the, the raw bits of the original um, Strahd adventure was written. But the fact that, that so much of this stuff can be tied back, and I can, you know, I've had such great experiences with Caverns of Thracia by Janelle Jaquaze as one of the, the, my favorite mini campaigns I've ever run. And um, so, many, so many of these things really had, really grabbed the lightning at a very early time. Mm -hmm. And I think I do agree with Janelle that it's the adventures that are maybe the most memorable things. Um, I really like going back, digging into the raw stuff, uh, bring you know, trotting it out at a at a convention, as you know, Paul. Um, and and I though you know they there's there's missteps and there's weirdnesses and there's things that you might have to clean up for the for the particular generation that you're dealing with. But that they they really did they really did put lightning in a bottle in a lot of circumstances. And um, I, I, I really, I really love that early stuff. I do. Mm. Mm. Fascinating. I think for me, the big, the big eye opener for me was just seeing the presentation of of a DM's kit and and thinking about modules maybe slightly differently in my head as being ingredients. Right. This is not a complete anything. Right. This is regardless of whether you're talking about the the, the super original stuff of Palace of the Vampire Queen or even later things, but like trying to think of these as less as this is a set amount of content for us to just experience cover to cover in in whole and rather think of it as here's a bunch of ingredients good luck but frankly it's just it's the way i think i've always approached running my games and generally when i'm reading adventures i'm looking for how much of the pieces of this can i pull out and reuse in other places um when i've run campaigns it's always been i'm going to steal this 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 dungeon wholesale, I'm going to chuck it there. I'm going to steal this idea from this dungeon. I'm going to put it here. I'm going to revamp this. And and so I like breaking it apart into pieces, reusing the bits that I like, pitching the parts that I don't. Um, so frankly, I kind of kind of am, I guess, almost a little disappointed to hear the language have altered from kit to module to adventure. Right, it's kind of moving away from the notion of parts and towards the notion of a whole. Uh, I like to think of them as parts, pieces. 
Interesting. Ideas. That's a great observation. I got to admit, yeah. I don't think exactly in those terms. Uh, I do think a little bit more like a like a like a like a script that I'm going to discover how it plays out. Um, mm. And uh, but so that, that's good for me to hear. Actually, I, I, w- I will say before we get out that that you're you're reminding me of um, you know the famous uh, White Plume Mountain adventure that we all love so much in 1970. It came out in 1979. Easily many people's top lists, and the fact that it was the reverse production. It was his, all of his traps and tricks from all of his many dungeons put into one single, one single dungeon as, uh, as an interview basically for TSR. And then when they published it as is, he was stunned. He was shot. Oh, oh my God. I didn't, I, I didn't expect he put all these, I th- these were supposed to be separate pieces you'd have in a bunch of separate dungeons. I didn't think I was literally going to be a product. <laughs> right. That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so good company. Well, viewers. Before we get out, let me just um, say that. Um, yep. Let me just say that um, if I can, Paul, I apologize. Uh, uh, Janelle Jaquay's spouse is still dealing with uh, medical bills. Uh, has a GoFundMe up, very close actually to her target in order to get out from underneath that. So we've got a link to the GoFundMe in the description on YouTube right there. And if you'd like to help out uh, Janelle Jaquay's spouse, uh, that would be much appreciated. And again, we all we 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 miss her a lot. Um, and uh, all uh, hopefully we'll continue to be inspired by Janelle's work going forward. Yeah, definitely. Please, please check out that link if you're if you're able. Um, and uh, viewers, if you have further thoughts on early modules, uh, the evolution of how the content was presented, or or what was included in a module, or whether it was a good idea at all, uh, please leave your thoughts in the comments section here of the YouTube video. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, maybe you'll spin up some new ideas for us to discuss further in a future episode of Wandering DMs. Yeah, definitely. And of course, remember that you can like and follow and subscribe to us on a variety of social media. We are on YouTube, we're on Twitch, we're on Facebook, we're on GitHub, we're on TikTok, and we do have the handle Wandering DMs on all those sites. So please look for us there. If you prefer to listen to this show in audio-only podcast format, you can find those podcasts on our website at wanderingdms.com. You can also listen to our show on various podcast carriers such as iTunes and Spotify and Pocket Casts. If you're listening to us right now on one of those third-party carriers and uh, they offer the ability to do so, please rate and review our show. That helps other users of that site find us, and we really appreciate it. We really, really do. And of course, every week, big thanks to our patrons who support the show. Um, if you'd like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wandering DMs. Just like Paul said at the top of the show, every single one of our tiers gets you onto our Discord server where the conversation is continuing live all the time, 24-7. And every week we have our after-party chat to touch base by video on Discord. So we'll be there in about 10 minutes or so. We love that every week. Um, anything else uh, that I'm forgetting here this week, Paul? Uh, no, that, that that about covers it. Hope uh, hope you can join us in the after party chat. Go go check out, check out our Patreon and and join in. Yeah, we'll look forward to seeing you there. So of course uh, we are live every Sunday at one p.m. Eastern time. So please join us again next week for another thought provoking discussion. We'll see. You.